Pavona. Thanks for joining us today. And this is our first ever podcast interview. And we've got, this is, this will be our inaugural episode of Ask a Theologian topic. And we're currently going through the doctrine of God as a church. And so this is a little bit of supplemental information. And just a little background, I I know you because of a course I took through Southeastern and we had mm-hmm. systematic theology. It was probably the course I was dreading the most because it had mm. it had the title theology in it. Uh, ended up being the one I enjoyed the most. So, uh, so, but let's be clear, Dave. You didn't just come to the class. You sat in the front row the yeah. whole time, I, like I, a hungry, like a hungry college student stood. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of a practice. I don't. I, I don't know why I've developed it. I sit in the front row in the church. I sit in. <laughs> I sit yeah. in the front row. Yeah, I do. Front row guy. He's just a front row guy. Of course. I, do. I, lo- I I love it. I love it. <laughs> Listen, could you just kind of tell us a little bit about yourself? I mean, that's it's great to say I had you as a professor, but I know you're highly qualified, and you, in fact, you call yourself a theologian. Yes, although with a dollop of imposter syndrome, every time I say that, I it feels like who the heck am I to be saying these sorts of things? Yeah, so I'm kind of my 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 world, as it were. I live here in Eugene, Oregon. I teach. I'm the associate professor of Bible and theology at Bushnell University, which is a really awesome undergraduate institution, Christian liberal arts school here in Eugene. It's actually the oldest uh, Christian um, school in Oregon. It was founded near statehood, really beautiful environment. And I also run a doctor ministry program at Friends University around spiritual formation and soul care. But kind of my background and probably why why you and I have the opportunity together is that I, I'm a trained systematic theologian. So I, I did my doctoral research years and years ago at the University of Birmingham in Britain on creation theology and how Pentecostals in particular think about creation and the earth and the environment. So I'm a Bible nerd and the, the, theology nerd by trade. And frankly, any opportunity I get to to enter into the nerdery is a, is a win for me, Dave. That's awesome. I, I'm, I'm thrilled to go into the nerdery yeah. today. I, you, you have a podcast as well with Dr. Yes. Yep. called Slow Theology. Changed the name a couple of years ago from On Faith and Doubt. Yeah. And yes. Then- yeah. And I'm always slow to on a podcast talk about my own podcast. But the the, the reality is, yeah, that's actually be- become a a really a really beautiful ministry. There's it, the whole premise of the thing is about how to think think about your faith if you've ever walked through questioning your own faith. How do you how do you walk through that experience, the deconstruction sort of journey? And uh, turns out there's a lot of people that that applies to. Sure. And you wrote a book on that as well. I did called After Doubt, uh, How to Question Your Faith Without Losing It. Yeah, we that was our book of the month a little while ago for the church. In the church? Yeah, yeah. We encouraged people to do it. Yeah, it'd be awesome. You know, there's a general rule for a theologian, and that is that we are happy if more people read the book than wrote the book. <laughs> yes. Okay. So that, so we, we've, okay. I guess we, we won. <laughs> <laughs> you're collab- You're working on a, a, another book on desire, if I remember, and you're also yes. collaborating yeah. on a book with uh, Dr. Gupta as well, aren't you? Yes. Yep. So I have a book coming out at the end of February called The Gift of Thorns, Jesus, the Flesh, and the War for Our Wants. It's a book about desire and want and right. what it looks like to be a Christian who wants, a, wants, wants rightly. Mm-hmm. And then Dr. Gupta and I are writing a book right now appropriately titled Slow Theology with that will be coming out in a couple of years. And then, and then I have one more book on contract that I'm I'm almost finished with, called "The Teachable Spirit: How mm. Christians Can and Should Learn from Anyone and Everything." 
so that's that's kind of a cool thing but you've also pastored for years mm -hmm. not just not just lived in academia yep. Yeah. Yeah. For, for 10 years, I was a church planter in Portland, Oregon. My wife and I established a church there called Theophilus that continues to minister in the city to the day, to this day. And then before that, I was a college pastor at the University of Oregon. So really cut my ministry teeth working in an academic environment doing ministry there. Yeah. That's awesome. That's awesome. I, I think one of the things that, I mean, I know for myself growing up in church in a Pentecostal church, the idea of, you know, the, the seminary, the academia, the theologian, it was, you know, the joke was, you know, they went to cemetery. And, yep. you know, I, I'm thrilled to see that changing and, and the connection between, the, there is a connection between what we believe and how we live. Mm -hmm. really yeah, well, shouldn't it, shouldn't it be, Dave, if we believe in the power of the Holy Spirit, shouldn't it be that when we are baptized in the Holy Spirit, Shouldn't it be that we believe that the, the Spirit baptizes the, all of us, yeah. our hearts, our, our, our bodies, our emotions? And, and it is odd to me. It seems like many Pentecostals have forgotten that maybe our minds are baptized too. Wow. Yeah, and that thinking, thinking well should be a Pentecostal like, a thing because we think we have the Spirit of truth who leads us into all truth, John 14. Yeah. We have the spirit of truth, and if the spirit leads us into all truth, shouldn't that mean that following Jesus is not an anti-intellectual activity? Yeah, yeah. it's cool. Yeah. yeah, that's cool. Awesome. Love it, love it, love it. And so we're we're doing the doctrine of God is what we're we're studying right now. And so can we can you talk a little bit about some of the theological arguments for the existence of God? Hmm. Mm. Yeah, yeah. So I, I told you before we begin, uh, I always love to to have dialogue like this without reading the questions in advance. And so, what I'm going to do, yeah, let's let's start with that. How do how, what are some of the arguments for the existence of God in in the doctrine of God? Which when you read books, theology books, it also goes by the name of theology proper. So theology proper and doctrine of God basically mean the same thing, and, it, and it's the study of the, the nature of God. So, so it's actually a really, uh, doctrine of, of God and theology proper is a very important di dimension of systematic theology because it deals with things like the Trinity. It deals with things like what is God's nature, the difference between the imminent Trinity and the, you know, the economic. Also, I mean, it's, there's all of these different elements of, of God's nature that are really important, the attributes of God so on and so forth. But the, the existence of God one is, su is such an interesting one, largely because in the history of the church, there have been so many varied and diverse approaches that Christians have taken to attempt to articulate uh, how we can know that there's a God. However, and th this, is, this, is, this, is, this is unique to our own moment, we live in an unprecedented time. Most people don't know this. The idea of atheism, the idea of a world without God, is a re is an almost brand new idea. Yeah. It. I mean, it it derives itself from really the the French rationalist position, developed into empiricism, and has become. There have always been little iterations of what you and I would call atheism, but widespread cultural atheism is is a brand new thing. Right. And in the history of the church, 
the church really never had to argue for God's existence. Right. It, it usually had to argue for why the Christian God was the true God, because mm-hmm. most people believed in something. Right. You, you don't find that's why in the Bible, a lot of people get frustrated that the Bible doesn't like have a chapter that gives the perfect argument for why God exists. This because is- ev- everybody assumed there were gods. Everybody assumed there were there were deities and whatnot. And so the, the reality is, and we are seeing, by the way, in the Western world, what secular a secular humanist society is like. You have everything you want, and it's very depressing and anxious written. Yeah. And, and, and so the church now is having to make some arguments that it's ever never had to really make before. Right, right. So... So in essence, this is a new conversation for the church. Not that it doesn't have responses, but the idea of making the case that there is a God to people who don't believe there's a God, right. that's a new thing. Yeah, wow. Well, there are lots of ways to argue for God's existence. There has been what is called the ontological argument of God, which is you know, a, a certain way of, of viewing sort of the nature of the, the world that, 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 that you can't, for example, you can't have classic Newtonian law of physics, you you can't have something come from nothing. Right. So even in the laws of physics, you can't go from there's nothing to there's everything. There has, you you can only dis, redistribute matter. Right. And so an ontological argument of God, at, at least in our moment, would be something like, well, how did everything become? Right. Um, you, you can't go from nothing to everything. Something had to begin at some point. There's the natural argument for God. The natural argument for God would would say that that nature seems to scream some divine attributes. Hmm. You know, why why is it that in every human culture everywhere there is a universal longing for human relationship? Right. Yeah. Yeah. And why is it that you don't see a desire for justice among the antelope and among rabbits? Right. There's something in humans that longs for a world of equity and goodness. So that kind of that that kind of slides over to the moral argument. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Argument. So that's right. The natural argument would be would be would would be more look at the nature of the universe. And there's there's some really compelling arguments. For example, when you look at how close the Earth is to the Sun, I've heard a number of 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 of, of physicists talk about astronomers talk about how if the Earth was like five feet closer or further away. We would burn or, or freeze. Wow. That, that we are perfectly situated to exist in in the natural order of things. Wow. The moral argument would be, and 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 actually, this was one of the things that led C.S. Lewis to faith, hmm. because for Lewis, he studied all the religions. He was a young atheist. He'd walked away from his Anglican roots, and he was a young atheist, and he went and studied all the religions, and he had this epiphany, and the epiphany was. Why is it that even though all the religions disagree with each other, right. everyone, even the atheist, is talking about God? Right. Yeah. And he had this he had this little quip where he said, it, it's this fabulous little line where he says, if there's no such thing as water, then why are we all so thirsty? <laughs> and, and he's talking about what if there is no God, like why in the world are we all so desperate for him? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that makes so, sense. So, I, I, there, there are so many arguments for the existence of God, but, but I want to, I think, I want to land on something at least for our own moment in time, yeah. and that is that one of the maladies, one of the symptoms of our own cultural age, is the arrogance to build a set of expectations through which God has to do something to show us that He's real. Right. Right. 
in John 14, there's this little line where the apostle says, uh, records the words of Jesus, who's speaking to one of the disciples. This is the final discourse in John's gospel. And he says, he says, in a little while, I'll no longer be with you. I, I'm not going to leave you as your orphans. And I'll send the spirit. But the world will not believe in him because they don't see him. Hmm. Right. So, so why would the world not be able to receive the Holy Spirit? Because it doesn't see him. In our empiricist world, which means in our world that demands I see something to believe, yeah. we refuse to accept the invisible. Right. And what that what that basically means is we have allowed our philosophical worldview to get in the way of experiencing something simply because our eyes cannot see it. The modern world is drenched with this idea that there's no such thing as a miracle. Everything is rational. Just right. notice, that's our expectation that we have created. Who's to say we're right? right. And my Old Testament professor in seminary called it anti-supernaturalistic presuppositionalism. <laughs> it's, the idea, it's the idea that we assume that things are not supernatural. You go to Africa, they do not share the same assumption. Yeah, that's, that's primarily a Western mindset. 100%. Yep. And it's all it's all up in here. Yeah. So I, I want to suggest there are there are very important arguments for the existence of God, but I think more important than making a solid case for the existence of God is I'd like to critique our assumptions about the universe a little bit. Wow, we are we are profoundly arrogant <laughs> in our sense of knowing what what we think we know about the world, and it's a very Western thing to say we're right and Africa is wrong. Yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, not just in theology. I mean, that's that's in a every room. whole broader, yeah. broader yes. package. Now, you know, I I think just kind of what you're saying is there's the whole thing that what we know about God is only what God chooses to show us as well. You know, the hiddenness of God and, and that yes. that side of it too. So let's let's go from there. You you brought it up as you were talking talking about the Trinity. I mean, that's a you know blow your mind thought. Um, how how would you how would you teach that? How would you express that? To people? Yeah, fabulous question. So how would I teach it? Just an observation about, okay, so I think there's two answers to that. The first answer is I'm wildly uncomfortable with most of the ways that the church teaches about the Trinity. And, and what I mean by that is I, I'm struck at how many times I'm asked about the Trinity where I'm tempted to talk about water molecules and eggs. <laughs> I think it's, Alistair McGrath in his latest book talks about the, how angry he gets when he hears a pastor try to. Oh, does does he does? Yeah, or a Christian? Yeah, yeah. even I want to do it. And and what I'm doing here's why I don't like that. And the the illustration is that you know water molecule is is three, H you know it's it's three kind of fused together. The the egg one is the yolk. The, the different elements together. Here's why I don't like that. And, and why, when I teach, I've got to be very careful to think about the Trinity in, in more expansive ways, is that it is a tendency of modern theology. Let me actually back up and say, it's a tendency of heresy hmm. to take the mysteries of God and make them too rational. Right. Sure. When you go back, just case study, when you go back to the first four centuries of the early church, the, the earliest Christian witness had all of these 
core apostolic teachings about the nature of Jesus and the Trinity and salvation and baptism. I mean, it's just key, key things that it wanted to give the world. And there were there would be always these pop these 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 groups that would pop up and take those ideas and try to make the mystery more explainable. Case in point, the early church believed in the dual nature of Christ. Yeah, Jesus is divine and human. It's yeah. called a paradox. My, my friend Len Sweet does a bunch of stuff on paradox. The Trinity's paradox, three and one. Every math major should be like, well, you can't do that. Right. Right. If in order to live, you must God. die. It's a paradox. I mean, these are these are things that you, they sound like contradictions. Yeah. But it's really a paradox, which is it's in our the rational mind, the flesh always calls a paradox a contradiction. Hmm. It doesn't know how to deal with paradox. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I think Lens Sweet used but, to call it double ring, double ring. Double, double. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's right. Yeah. So, so the, par- the the early witness of Jesus is always paradoxical. He is God and human at the same time. Yeah. The heresies popped up, mm. and what did they do? They took that and they wanted to make it more understandable. And so you've got groups like the Arians who yeah. said, "No, no, 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 no. He's human, but he became God." Right. Yeah. Or there's this group called the Dissetics who said, no, he only seems to be God. Yeah. Or he only seems to be a human, but he's only God. Yeah. And what you see is they're trying to take the mystery and make it more rational. So that is always a mark yeah. of heresy. Is that I'll put it this way: if it makes sense, yeah. it's probably a heresy. So we we actually do a whole disservice to our theology if we try to make it too understandable. Yes. Yes, that's exactly right there. It's fine to use analogy. Analogies are, the Bible's full of analogies. For heaven's sake, the book of Isaiah calls God a mother hen. Analogies are fine. Yeah. But the problem is for many people, when they, when they receive an analogy, they, they concretize the analogy and all of a sudden think, oh, God must have feathers. Right. Sure. No, it's, it's an analogy. So the Trinity. So number one, we got to be cautious about analogies and images that yeah. limit God's nature. Yeah. Okay. Secondly, when I teach the Trinity, I think that one of my favorite ways to address the topic of teaching the Trinity is actually to help people see how other Christians have thought about the Trinity outside of sort of the Western evangelical world. And one of my favorite ways to do that is to go to the Eastern Orthodox, which this has commonly been written about. And it's, it's really beautiful. The Eastern Orthodox view of the Trinity has often used a word for the Trinity called the perichoresis. Yes, and perichoresis is the it in in Greek it literally peri around choresis the dance it literally means the dance around yeah yeah and it's it's the idea you know in the Western world the Trinity is usually the Father Son and Spirit it's right. a Trinity which yeah. honestly looks more like a, a pyramid scheme than it does the the nature <laughs> of Godhead to say nothing of the fact that it's actually a little heretical to put God above the Father right. above Jesus yeah. Yeah, there, right. there's, there's, I, we should be uncomfortable with that subordination. And yet, that would be something that many people growing up in Western church, oh, subconsciously yeah. assume the father's absolutely, identity. yeah, absolutely. Just there's, I, I'm not saying if you've ever had given been given a, a pyramid, you're a heretic. I'm not saying that, <laughs> but it's just a, it's not the most helpful way of imagining the Trinity. The perichoresis, yeah, is the idea that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, and this, uh, it's just. The idea that for all eternity, that God has been dancing. Yeah. 
with each other and with each other and that and that if if we are told in the bible that god created everything out of love before the foundations of the earth yeah if god is love yeah and he created out of love well you gotta ask who is god loving yeah yeah and it, it immediately assumes that god had someone to love before the creation of the world yeah that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, Augustine called it the condilectum, the equal longing of the Father, Son, and the Spirit for one another. And that being a Christian, come on, <laughs> being yeah. a Christian yeah. is learning how to dance at the rhythm of the Trinity. <laughs> wow. Wow. That's amazing. And, and, Isn't that? Oh, I, so I, much better than eggs and water. Mod I, mod I love it. I remember you shared it in class. The, the Oh, uh, so the much day, better. And I love it. It's uh, It just makes so much more sense because Western mind, we think God love, you know, God is love. We're looking at this abstract con concept yep. of love. But yes. This inter, this dance that, that goes on that, that That's right. really demonstrates love. Now, I, you know, thinking about Trinity in that in in that sense too, but, you know, the other side of it is is we are considered monotheistic. And, and, you know, in the tradition of, you know, the three great monotheistic religions, Judaism, Islam, and, and Christianity, why is it important that we believe Trinity? Yeah. Uh, you know, why can't we just say, you know, hey, you know, Yahweh, God, it's just a different name. Allah, it's the same, same one. Why can't we yeah. say that? Why, why is the Trinity important? Yeah, actually, <laughs> shocker, Christianity actually is not a monotheistic religion. We are not monotheistic. If if we're going to take the term literally, well, we're going to uh, we are now. So yeah, <laughs> we're, we're a trinitarian movement, sure. and yeah. and that's different. We're not tritheistic. Right. A tritheistic would be the idea of three gods. Yeah. We're not tritheistic. We're not monotheistic. We're not pantheistic. We're not atheistic. We're trinitarian, which means that the Christian perspective, which is which is birthed out of the great monotheistic faith of Judaism. Right. However, I, I'm cautious. I, I agree. If you were to talk to 100 Jewish people today, they would say, yes, Judaism is a monotheistic faith. Right. But there are some wildly seductive hints in the Old Testament that God is more than one. Right in the first couple of chapters of Genesis. Yes. Yeah. So we have in Genesis 1, for example, God saying, let us make man in our image. Yeah. Now, a, a, a Jewish person, person would say, you know, that the word Elohim in Hebrew is always a plural word, and which is which is accurate. But 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 all the more it speaks to the fact that that even when God speaks about himself, God speaks about himself in the plural. Yes. Yeah. You you have these moment after moment after moment of of seeming moments where it, it you read a text and you go like that reads like an incarnation of Jesus. Yes. With Moses in the desert. That looks like <laughs> that reads like I mean these so I I I I I would say the Bible is written generally the the, the Old Testament is written with a monotheistic framework but there are some very subtle and sophisticated hints that God is more than one. I, the, the, the three the three that come to Abraham. Genesis in Genesis 18, the three that come to Abraham and 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 the whole thing with with Sarah and and then 
they go into Sodom with Lot, who's there. And yeah, I mean, so the earliest Christians, by the way, pick this up. One of the one of the most famous paintings icons is called Trinity's Rublev, and any of the your your listeners can go look at it. And when you look at it, Trinity's Rublev, it's three. It's three divine beings right. sitting next to each other at a table. And when you look at it, the table is set so that you are invited to come into the table of these three characters. Yeah. And when you look at the, cre- the the divine beings, they have they have wings. But then when you look in the background, you actually cannot tell if it is the Trinity or if it's the three angels from Genesis 18. Right, right. And that's a, painting. that's a painting. You're it's an icon. And I, I, I think the earliest Christians, very early on, because of the teachings of Jesus yeah. and his own Trinitarian language of the Father and I are one, the Spirit, I mean, the greatest Trinitarian text is in Matthew 3, the baptism of Jesus. When Jesus comes out of the water, the Father speaks, the Spirit comes down. Now, if there's only one God, then Jesus is having to run up to heaven, yell down at himself, and then come back up and then come down on himself. I mean, either... There's more going on than the one right. um, or th- there's something. Yeah. So the word Trinity is not in the Bible, but tr- it is drenched with Trinitarian language. Yeah. So, so, uh, I mean, just based on that alone, it, it would be intellectually impossible to say that Allah as the, the God of Islam is the same oh. as Yahweh. Yeah, and actually, actually, for those that make the case that Allah is the same as the God of the New Testament, I feel is a disservice to Muslims, mm. um, because ultimately what that's doing is taking their image of God and seeking to wow. um, imprison it with our God that we worship. Right. And so as, as an as an act of hospitality to, towards the Muslim, I would be very cautious to assume that that the God of Allah is the same as the God Jesus spoke of. No, yeah, no, there's a, there's a, I won't say a strain, but a stream of Pentecostalism. And I think it's uh-huh. unique to Pentecostalism that, that we would call oneness. Yes. Uh, who don't believe in the Trinity. Yes. How do, how's that? How's that work? Yep. Yeah. With respect to my oneness friends, and I have some oneness friends sure. uh, who, who would be from this perspective. And so if my, if my, any of my oneness friends are listening in, uh, I love you, brother. I'm yeah. with you. I'm, 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 I'm your friend. But, and this would not be a shocker to any oneness person who's read any of the literature. There's a oneness theology, which by the way, in the Pentecostal world, one fourth of all Pentecostals are oneness. Yeah, crazy. So yeah. to give you a sense globally, that's that's a big yeah. you know, chunk of the Pentecostal tradition. Oneness theology, I, I fear, in love, I fear commits the same sin that the early heretics did. Mm. And that is, it is attempting to over-rationalize the mystery of the Trinity. Right. And so, yeah, oneness, oneness Pentecostalism would say that there is one God. And, 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 and actually, this gets really practical because for oneness folks, you cannot be baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You can only be baptized in in the name of Jesus. Right. And again, in love, yeah. you're sidestepping even the commands of Jesus, who said, I, I send you into the world to baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Yeah. By the way, notice in the name yes. of the Father, Son, and Spirit, not the names, the name, the singular name, the Father, Son, and Spirit. But 
Yeah, so it's the, the, the problem with oneness Pentecostalism is it tends to often feed off people that have believed in the Trinity, mm-hmm. and they use that oneness theology as a way to rattle somebody's somebody's faith a little bit. So yeah, if your church or denomination ever says this, then this is the sign of 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 any any good cult is if you can only be saved by being baptized in that church, yes, that's a good sign. Yeah, that's that's a problem. And and if I remember right, the oneness Pentecostal part of the you know the argument for baptizing in in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ is to say that yes, Jesus said baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But in the book of Acts, they only used the pattern of the Lord Jesus Christ. Mm. So um, that's an odd way to read the Bible. Yeah. To first apparently attempt to put the book of Acts over the words of Jesus. Right. That's an odd move hermeneutically. That's an odd exegetical move. Yeah. But secondarily, we don't read the Bible that way. We read the whole Bible and we don't take certain parts and isolate them and put them over other parts. The, a good reader of the Bible says that the entire Bible is the word of God to us. And that takes a lifetime of work and study. And we don't we don't pit the book of acts against jesus yeah 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 very very well said very well said i, I can't believe how quickly the time is going here on maybe do one more question yeah I, have, I, I actually have one question then i'm going to ask you for some recommendations of books for people that uh, want to go a little deeper ah. so my my question this we've been talking about the trinity we've been talking about you know that side of things and that still seems a little bit kind of theoretical theological here what difference does believing in the Trinity or what difference should it make to a person in their day-to-day life? Man alive. I have, I have about 40 responses. I, w- I would say, I would say the number one, one response that I would say at our moment in time, I live in America. You can pray for us. I'm, <laughs> I'm very concerned about the, the political. I'm very concerned about what's taking place in our nation right now. Yeah. And I'm not just concerned about what's taking place in our nation. I am concerned about it, it it feels as though we're starting to see the cracks yeah and 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 that and that the system is not able to withhold the level of godlessness that i i'm seeing rise to the surface wow. if i'm being candid with you yeah. wow. and one of the problems with tribalism and one of the problems of political tribalism mm-hmm. and the rise of fundamentalism which fundamentalism this is an interesting word that word fundamentalism Fundamentalism is not a particularly religious term. Fundamentalism, there's a there's a an, an old evangelical thinker who once said that fundamentalism is not a theology, it's a psychology. Right. And it's a way of thinking about the world that says we're right and everyone else is wrong. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And and that kind of fundamentalism, there is secular fundamentalism, there is progressive fundamentalism, there's conservative fundamentalism, and I'm seeing it pop up all over the place. Right. You ask me about why the Trinity matters. Yeah. I don't think there is any way in the world for us to mitigate the godlessness of our society and the rising tribalism that we're seeing without embracing the Trinity. And here's why. The Trinity is simultaneously, simultaneously, the unity of God. So God is one. They are unified in purpose, in heart, in call. They They are one. But they're also different. Yeah. Yeah. Diversity, unity. And 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 the Father, Son, and Spirit are different beings. They are not the same being. And 
the spirit is different from the father and the father's different from the son and the spirit they're different look yeah. at look at our churches yeah we don't know how to create church cultures mm. that reflect the trinity wow yeah we either create churches where everything is unified and there's no difference yeah and i would say that's more the conservative tendency mm. we're all unified no difference or we go hyper progressive which is all difference and no unity right yeah, yeah, and I would say both of those are heresies of the Trinity. Mm, wow! The local church is intended to be a space where Dave, you and I are one. We are one in Christ. Yeah, and I am required under the power of Jesus to love you as though we are ontologically one in Christ. Right, and yet, yeah, I must treat you as the person God made you to be, and yeah. you are different. And I'm weird and different. And the only way I can learn to be one with you and different from you at the same time is I need God to model it for me. Mm. I, I We were in D.C. a while ago at Batterson, Mark Batterson's church, National Community mm -hmm. Church. And in the conversation, I heard a phrase come up a couple of times that really hit me. The image of God in me creates the image of God in you. Yes. Uh, which yes. I just thought was, yeah, I mean, I've heard it in other, you know, the goddess in me increasing. I, I know that's not, it could be weird too, but I just thought that was, that was really, really, really cool. Just to kind of maybe just, uh, just a little bit more on that line that you're saying is, is essentially the, the Trinity as a, as, as the mystery of the Trinity, but it's actually the model for all of creation. Yep. It is intended to be, look at creation. I mean, A, look at creation. God create, look at all the animals. All the animals are different, different species. He sets them apart of their own kind. It's the phrase over of their own kind, their own kind, their own kind. God creates diversity. Yes. Diversity is God's creation. Yeah. yeah Our is... world has taken diversity and made it so different than what God meant by diversity. Exactly. But diversity is God's idea. Yeah. So here's a question. Will there still be diversity in heaven? Mm. And when you go and look, in John's description of heaven and earth, the new creation, he looks and he sees what? Every tribe and tongue. Oh, good. I was I was in trouble because our vision, part of our vision statement says we will be as diverse as heaven. And I thought was just going to get ruined right now. <laughs> no, John can say that yeah. because he looks in the room and it's not all white people. Yeah, yeah. He can see. Here's what's beautiful. Yeah. Creation imbues diversity. New creation baptizes diversity. Wow. And and heaven does not annihilate difference. Right, right. It annihilates sin and death. Yeah, yeah. But not godly difference. So cool. So cool. I love in this conversation. I think we've kind of hit a whole bunch of different little yeah. topics on the way. They've been fantastic. Can, Can you... I recommend a book? Yeah, please, please. Yeah, hands down, the best book in the last couple of years that's been written. It, it is in theology proper, uh, but it's about the doctrine of the Trinity. Yeah. And the book is by Michael Reeves called Delighting in the Trinity. Okay. And it is, um, yeah, if this were an ACDC concert, I would say it's face melting. Um, <laughs> it is it is an absolutely remarkable read on the Trinity. It's accessible. Yes. It's down to earth. And it is, um, it answers the question, what was God doing before he created the world? Mm -hmm. Wow. Michael Reeves, I think it's on our, I think it's on our suggested reading list already. So As it should be. As it should be. Awesome. Yep. And uh, that's great. Hey, uh, Dr. Svoboda, thank you so much for taking time. 
I, I know that you are busy and uh, I, I'm very honored that you would take time to uh, share with it's us. Good. It's and, a gift. God's uh, grace to you, Dave, in the church. And for, for all of you in the power of Jesus, would would you be so hungry to see Jesus that you don't need an argument to believe in him? Yes. You just believe. Awesome. <laughs> believe. Awesome. Amen. That's so great. Awesome. Thanks again. Thanks, and I uh, really appreciate you being with us. You're welcome. All right. Thanks for tuning in to a Year of Spiritual Formation podcast. To learn more about C3 Church in Central BC or for additional resources, head to c3church.ca.